We're looking at Ephesians 2, and I'm sure that you are aware that Ephesians is talking a lot about the gospel and what our salvation is, what it means. We've already seen some amazing truths in the first chapter that talk about the gospel and our salvation from God's point of view, even going back into eternity past before he founded the universe. He had a plan for you and for me and for all of us and for our salvation and and how the Lord is going to get glory through our lives in eternity future. Now one of the things that you'll notice as um, you study Paul's epistles, his practice nearly every time is to begin with doctrine and teaching and lay a, a foundation of truth and then build on that with how to put it into practice. Uh, so, for instance, in Ephesians, the first three chapters are doctrine. The last three pra- chapters are practice. Let's take Colossians. First two chapters, doctrine. Chapters three and four, practice, how to live it. And, and this, you know, goes through Paul's epistles, that pattern. Lay out the truth. Lay out the teaching. Put the doctrine out there. Remember, doctrine is teaching. The word of pass on t- to one another. And then, not stopping there, how to live it. It's no good to know the truth and then not live it, right? Okay, so so we're building right here. We're in the first half of the book where he's laying out the doctrine. In the first chapter, he talked about the amazing things about our salvation. How he chose us before the foundation of the world. How he adopted us. He predetermined that. How he sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And then we come to to chapter 2. And he was showing us how the salvation message is almost always presented in a past, present, future scenario. Have you noticed that? We talk about our salvation. Always have to talk about who we were and now who we are in Christ and where we're headed. You follow that? You're with me, right? So, so Paul is talking about this past, present, future scenario. And what we're going to delve into here, beginning in, in chapter 2, verse 11, is kind of like the nature of the church. And it's some really important things to understand. And here's the big one, the big thing to understand, which you already know, and you're not going to be shocked, but that Jews and Gentiles come on the same basis of salvation by faith and fit into the body of Christ. And I'm sure nearly everyone here would say, "Uh, Pastor, I knew that. Okay? And I know that you know it. But what what we sometimes miss is how super fantastic, amazing this truth was in Paul's time. This was just like, wow! Unthinkable! And so we're going to delve into that a little bit because for Jews and Gentiles to come together in the same body, in the same congregation, in the same building, was just off the chart, crazy kind of talk. And see, we're so used to it. It's like, yeah, ho-hum, yeah, we knew that. Thanks for telling us. But I want you to feel it. I want you to feel what Paul is trying to get across here. So as we continue now in Ephesians 2, Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul's going to focus on the Gentiles in the body of Christ. 
Now, now stop and think about this for a moment. Think of the history of the world for a moment. Go back to Genesis. You got Adam and Eve, and you got the first 11 chapters of Genesis that covers like uh, some 1,500 to 2,000 years of, of history. And you got the patriarchs, and then you've got the ungodly line and, of um, Cain and, and so on. And, and you've got how the world gets filled up with people and sin just pervades the world. And then what happens? God looks around for a godly person, and who does he see? Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? And so then he destroys the world with water, and you come to Genesis 12, and now he's going to start a whole new thing. He's looking around going, "Uh uh-oh. Well, not really uh uh-oh, but you know. God doesn't say, uh-oh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if it was me, I'd be going, uh-oh. We're going back the way we were before Noah. Now, God doesn't say, uh-oh. Okay, but, but, and so what does he do? He chose Noah. Now he chooses who? Abraham. Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to call out a people for myself. And he uses the perfect plan, an old man and an old woman, to start a new family. You know, the exact opposite of what most of us would think. You know, we'd start off with somebody that's graduating from college or something, right? No, he chooses old Abraham and old Sarah and does something amazing. And so the whole rest of the Old Testament, a couple more thousand years, is all about how this family started with these two old people and spread and become a nation, and, and they go down to Egypt, and then he calls them out of Egypt, and he's got Moses, and then, you know, we've got this, all this Old Testament history. And a lot of times I think we look at the Old Testament as, wow, you know, this is a lot of great Bible stories, and, and some of them are a little bit dusty, and some of them are just like unbelievably hard to figure out what they're talking about. And then you come to the New Testament, right? Then, then what? Jesus. The birth of Jesus. And he comes to fulfill all the things the prophets said. And he comes to the nation, Israel, that started with the old man and the old woman. And he comes to them to show the ultimate message from God. And what does the nation do with God's amazing, perfect, God-man messenger, Jesus? They reject him. And he dies on the cross. And he's buried. And he rises again. But he only shows himself to those who believe. He doesn't get up in front of the whole world. He doesn't go to Pilate. He doesn't tell the Roman government, hey, I'm back. Don't you guys get it? You know, I'm, I'm the son of God and I'm alive. No. He only shows himself to the believers. And then he goes to heaven and he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and start this congregation of almost all Jewish people, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem church. How many Gentiles are in there? Can you think of any? I can't think of any at the beginning there. But then the Lord said, but I want you to take it not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea and to Samaria and to what class? The uttermost parts of the world. And so 
And he allowed persecution to push the church out because they didn't want to go. And so then they start spreading the gospel. And here's Paul fitting into God's plan, taking the gospel to Ephesus. And who are most of the people in Ephesus? Jews or Gentiles? Oh, there's some Jews there, but mostly Gentiles. Asia Minor. Then you cross over you know, the Macedonian vision into Greece. And then eventually to Rome. And now... Uh, look around. The church is starting to get more Gentiles than Jews. Now you see this progression? And we've got to get this. We've got to see the whole Bible to get this. Now what happened in the meantime? When we, when we get to this point of Paul talking to the Ephesians about how Jews and Gentiles are saved on the same basis, by grace through faith, and yet, remember, their perspectives are different. What do the Jewish people think about Gentiles? You don't want to say. Thumbs down, right? They're subhuman. That's basically what they thought. Gentiles are like, they, their favorite name was, they're dogs. They're, you know, they're not human. How, uh, what did Gentiles think about Jews? <laughs> they're troublemakers. They're weird. I don't know what they do in those meetings that they have, but they do a lot of weird things. And now God's going to start calling out a people for himself from both Jews and Gentiles, putting them together into a body. And they're actually going to learn to be together. They're going to learn to eat meals together. They're going to learn to sit in the same room together. You remember, Jews would not allow a Gentile in their house, ever. I mean, that was, you didn't do that. You talk about racism. That's, that was the ultimate racism between Jews and Gentiles. You talk about people groups hating each other. You talk about hostility. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And I want you to feel it. You've got to feel how amazing and painful this had to have been for so many of them. It was even hard for Peter. Remember how Peter messed up a couple times? You know, God told him, I'm going to give you this vision in the book of Acts. He gives a vision in chapter 10. Start eating unclean meat. And Peter says, uh, no, I've never done that and never going to do it. And God says, What? I'm telling you, we're making a change. My mind is just going crazy right now. Remember when we, when we lived in Florida, we lived in a neighborhood where Seventh-day Adventists would come and put books on my door on a regular basis and come and challenge me all the time. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of different groups. But the Seventh-day Adventists would say, who changed the Sabbath? And I wanted to say, I've got the answer! Jesus did! They didn't want to believe it. But he did. When he told Peter, you're going to start eating food that you couldn't eat before, he took away all the ceremonial laws and stuff and started changing things. Okay, so here's where we're going. We're going to consider again this past, present, future scenario of, our, of our, the gospel of our salvation. But today I want to specifically 
hone in what we were as Gentiles before we were saved, before Christ saved us. And really, I only have two points. Here's my outline. Number one, as Gentiles, what we were before coming to Christ. I want you to think about it, and I want you to feel it with me. And it's going to take, you're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to really focus to get this. And then secondly, as Gentiles, how Christ brought us to himself. And I recognize these are things you already know. You're not going to walk out of here and say, I never heard that before. No, you already know it. But I want you to feel it. So first of all, as Gentiles, what we were before coming to Christ this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.11. Look with me, all right? Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, here's the first main thought. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. As Gentiles, what we were before coming to Christ. And again, it's difficult for us. Like for me, I can't remember this. My parents brought me to church when I was a baby. You know, I sat under the teaching of God's word I can't remember when I didn't know these things, you know? So it's hard for me to take into what he's saying here in my personal experience. I don't think of myself as a Gentile in the flesh. In fact, I want you to know the word Gentile now is not something that we are going to call each other. Don't call anybody a Gentile who's a Christian. Why? Because the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Gentile bond or free, male or female, we're all one in Christ. So don't call me a Gentile. Calling me a Gentile is, this, is like saying you're an unbeliever. That's what a Gentile is, an unbeliever, unbelieving non-Jew. Okay? But Paul says this is what you were. You were Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you were not born Jewish. And so this term Gentile, in, in Greek it's ethne, that's where we get the word ethnic, right? People group. Among Christians, Gentile refers to unsaved non-Jews. And again, he says, therefore remember that at one time, and he's talking to the Ephesians here, and this was true in their experience, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you weren't born Jewish. And there was people who we call the circumcision who called you uncircumcision. I'm always excited when I get to talk about circumcision. Aren't you? Whenever you read it in the Bible? Because there's got to be a child or somebody that's going to say to their parent today, what's circumcision? And I'm going to allow you parents to explain that. <laughs> but let's just suffice it to say, it is minor surgery on a male baby that God used as the mark for Abraham. Okay, And so he wanted this mark to be actually on the body so that it could not be escaped. 
You know, it wasn't like taking a magic marker and making a, writing your initials on your forehead or something. I mean, it was a mark in the body. It was a surgery. And we know that down through the ages, that became the mark of the Jewish people. The children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and circumcision became the big thing. Remember, Jesus was circumcised when? On the what day? The eighth day. Why, why the eighth day? Well, because God said so. That's why. But we also found out medically that the eighth day is when the vitamin K is at the highest and there's less bleeding from the surgery. Isn't that interesting how God happened to know that? And so that's what he, what he uh, prescribed. Gentiles didn't care about that. They didn't care about circumcision. That meant nothing to them. And yet God said to his people, if you don't do this, you're not mine. Again, it only applied to the males, but it was a people group kind of a thing. And so it was a mark of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the word uncircumcision became this derisive term that for, for Gentiles used by the Jews. It was the same as saying, you are worthless. You're uncircumcised. Your family, the males of your family, you are worthless. You are subhuman. You are nothing better than a rogue dog. Not a pet dog that you like, but a dog that you would want to chase away. That's who you are. Jews considered all Gentiles as enemies, as subhuman, and only fit to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now, that's not how God intended it. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you with a family, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The plan was supposed to be that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the nation of Israel, that the people of the world would be reached. But because of their sin, they didn't even want to believe in God themselves. And so that wasn't happening. God wasn't surprised. But do you know that there are many examples among rabbinical writings of Gentiles who are turned away from faith in the true God? Remember the message in the Old Testament was come. You want to know God? You have to come and become a Jew. They called it a proselyte. But there's many examples. For instance, there's one rabbinical writing where the rabbi actually wrote this. A Gentile woman came to his door and said, I believe that your God is the true God and I, and I want to be... I want to know him. How can I know him? And he said, you can't. And he slammed the door in her face. And then he wrote it down that he did that because he wanted his people to know this is how you handle Gentiles. When they come and say, I want to know the true God, you tell them, you can't, goodbye, because you are worthless. That was their mindset. And th those kind of examples are repeated again and again and again. And so God used this circumcision as the mark of his covenant for Abraham. And it served as a reminder that God is the giver of conception. That's why he did that. That's why he marked that part of the body. It's a reminder that the sin nature is passed by the father to the child. The virgin birth of Christ is the main proof of this. Scripture repeatedly teaches that the sin nature, we just saw that in this previous passage in Ephesians 2, that the sin nature is passed from the father to the child. And so many times the Bible talks about the effect of a father's sins on his children. And so Gentiles were known 
as uncircumcision, and that meant totally worthless. Are you getting this? Are you starting to feel the hostility? He goes on to say that as Gentiles, we had a distinct disadvantage. Notice what he says in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, if he didn't say anything else, that would be enough. If, if he didn't add any other disadvantage, if he just simply said, before the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and you were brought to Christ, when you were a Gentile, you were separated from Christ because Christ is the Messiah of the Jewish people. He came as their king who was rejected. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. And now he's the giver of life. Before, you didn't know anything about him. Think of all the times the Apostle Paul was taking the gospel through Asia Minor and preaching Christ. They were like, Christ, who's that? He's Jesus of Nazareth, and he claimed to be God. And he died on the cross, and he came back alive, and we're his eyewitnesses. And here's the message. And Jewish people would say, oh, well, show us in the Old Testament. Oh, here's what the prophet said. And then some Gentiles would be saved. Because the message was so phenomenal and clear? No, because God saved them in spite of how difficult it was. But he said, before you were saved, you Gentiles were separated from Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, he goes on. He expands on it. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So not only were you unsaved, you were disconnected from the only country, the only people group that knew who the true God was. In other words, you were completely lost. To be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel means that you don't have a country. You don't have any citizenship. You don't have any rights. You're, you're separated from the only hope that there is in the world, and that was through Israel. He goes on to say not only that, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You didn't even know what the covenants were. You didn't know who Abraham was, or Isaac, or Jacob, or David. You didn't know about the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. You didn't know any of that stuff. And so, because you were strangers means you had no friends that really count. You had no companions of faith. And on top of that, you didn't have any scriptures. Did the Gentiles have a Bible? No, they didn't. The scriptures were part of Israel, right? beforehand. And so he concludes by saying, you have no hope. You know what no hope means? It means no hope. That's what it means. Just what exactly what it says, in other words. To have no hope means to have no hope. They have nothing to look forward to. And then he says, you finally are, you were without God. You know what the Greek word for that is? It's Atheoi. It's where we get the word atheist. You were atheists. You didn't even know there was a God. You had worshipped everything but God. You worshipped the world and, the, and creation and you made your own gods, but you had no idea who God is. So you were at a complete disadvantage. You were completely lost. There was no hope. That's who you were as Gentiles. You see what Paul is saying to them? Do you feel it? If you were in Ephesus reading this letter, do you realize how completely lost you were? 
I mean, I, I don't know that we can, as New Testament believers, really enter into how bad it was. Do you ever stop and think about all the people who have, are lost, who have died? Do you struggle with that thought? I hope you do. What about reading the Old Testament, all those wars where Israel went and just wiped people out, killed them all? What about those people? Well, you know, God's the righteous judge. I'm not. Could any of those people have been saved? Yes. Were any non-Jews saved at times? Yes. But they had to come to know the true God. So we've said as Gentiles, what we were before coming to Christ, we were called the uncircumcision. Didn't have the mark, meaning you are completely worthless as a people. You are subhuman. You count for nothing. You, are, you have distinct disadvantages. You're cut off from Christ and God. You have no scriptures. You have no promises. You have no hope. You have no knowledge. You've got nothing. That's what he's saying. And we're talking about the nations of the world. And Paul is saying, before Christ, you people were less than nothing. But notice the words of verse 13. What does it say? But God. Have we heard that anywhere else in this passage before? Yes. Where? Back in what verse? Verse 4. Remember the but God of verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with, with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm reading now verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can't forget that part. That's where the gospel's laid out so clearly. Well, when he laid it out so clearly there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, then what are we doing in verses 11 to 17? We're talking about how the church fits together. We're talking about what happens, you know, this past, present, and future scenario of the gospel. You were lost, but now you're saved. But what are you supposed to do with it? And that's what we all need to get when we walk out that door today. What are we supposed to do with it? Do we just come to church, let the pastor get up and, you know, set himself on fire in the pulpit or whatever, and then go home and say, ho-hum, that was great, you know, I'm glad we did it. Or it doesn't, is there something we're supposed to do? Is there supposed to be a difference? When he says, but God, in verse 4, and he says it again here in verse 13, notice what he says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We went from but God, but now in Christ. He's starting to show now, and secondly today, as Gentiles, how Christ brought us to himself. Okay, we just looked at where we were 
categorically, historically, as non-Jews, how hopeless we were. But now he says, but get this, but now in Christ. Does anybody remember the title of my first sermon in Ephesians? Two words, in Christ, Paul's favorite expression. His favorite expression, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be saved. It means to be the heir of of all the, the wondrous things of, of uh, heaven and, and the, everything that Jesus owns, he's sharing it with us. We're in Christ. It means to be saved and you can never be lost. It means to live forever. And he says here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He uses some important expressions here and, and maybe you might wonder, well, is near good enough? He's using a Jewish way of thinking here because before, the Gentiles were far off, but the Jews were near. To be far off meant hopeless. Far, far away. No way of having any connection with God. But to be brought near meant to be brought as close as you could get to the presence of Christ. Now you've got to remember the Jewish people, they struggled with that concept. I mean, they were made to struggle. Remember the tabernacle? You had this tent, and who could go in the tent? A priest. Who could go in the, the second section in there, from the holy place into the holy of holies? The high priest once out of the year. The average person never went in the tent. There was no furniture there. Later on when the temple was built, was there any furniture to sit down? Did they have any chairs? No, because you didn't go in there to sit down. In fact, you always had to stay a little ways away, and you had to go through the priest with your sacrifice, and the priest would go as far as the veil, and that's as far as they could go. And so they had ingrained in them this thought that the best that you can be is near. Do you like superlatives? One of my, my best superlative is pretty good. That's about as high as I go. You know, when Diana says, how, how was the, the meal? It was pretty good. I mean, that's like the best. <laughs> that, that's the, 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 the thought here. They've been brought near. That's as close as you can get. Christ brought us near. And so in the Jewish mind, Gentiles are far off, meaning totally and completely lost, but to be brought near meant to be brought into a covenant relationship. And of course, for us New Testament believers, it simply means to be saved. I like like the simple thing of to be saved. Don't you like that? I didn't invent that. Paul invented that. Jesus did it. Jesus accomplished it. He says, Christ is our peace. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's verse 14. Did you notice that? 
First of all, Christ brought us near, and secondly, Christ is our peace, according to verse 14. Christ is our peace, and he did what ordinances, sacrifices, human merit, and works of the law could not do. You know, in the Old Testament, they'd offer a sacrifice. There were different kinds of sacrifices. If you committed a specific sin, there needed to be a sacrifice. There were also sacrifices for ignorance. There were sacrifices for simply for worship, to give back to God. But was any of those Old Testament sacrifices final? They weren't, were they? You'd offer it, and the blood would be spilled out, and you know, it was this bloody thing that they did in their ritual. But it was only to cover their sin. It was to atone. It was a covering. But it always pointed forward to a sacrifice that would be final. And we know that sacrifice is what Jesus did on the cross. He brought us near, and now he's provided peace. What all those animal sacrifices could not do. What all those laws could not do. Have you ever read through Leviticus? Have you? Read through Leviticus? Um, Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's, That's one of the great ones, you know. Okay, that sounds pretty harsh, mean thing to do. Don't do that. You know what that has meant for Jewish people now? You cannot eat a cheeseburger. You can never have meat and dairy at the same meal, ever. When we were in Israel, no milk for breakfast. They They were making eggs and you know, different things that we ate. Unless they made a special little room for the, the Gentiles, you know, to go if they wanted milk on their cereal or something. But they took every one of these little laws. How about you can't mix two kinds of thread in making a garment? You can't have wool and flax or, you know, you can't have different kinds of thread. Why was that? Because it's a bad thing to mix threads? It was because God wanted the children of Israel to be different. You know what the word holy really means? Holy means different. It never means sinless. Never. It always means set apart, different. God is holy because he's different. There's no one that can be compared to him. But there's all these ceremonial laws in Leviticus that were intended and they were different from the moral laws like the Ten Commandments. You you realize there's 613 commands in, in the Torah? 613 different commands. How would you like to keep track of all those? How would you know when you broke one of those? Unless you memorized all of them and studied them. Well, that's what... The Apostle Paul's talking about, notice what he says here. For he himself is our peace, verse 14, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, now get this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed 
in ordinances. He put it in another way. In Colossians, he said that Jesus took all those ceremonial commands, all those commands that were just intended to make Israel different. They weren't the moral laws. They weren't the Ten Commandments, not having other, any other gods, no, worshiping idols, not taking God's name in vain, you know, not you know, honor your parents, even the Sabbath principle, which is a tough one, but uh, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting. Those are eternal values of God. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about the ordinances, the, all the animal sacrifices, those kinds of things he, he's taken away. In Colossians it says he took them and he nailed them to the cross. What this practically means is to get to God now, you don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to worry about eating cheeseburgers. You know? You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You follow that? Oh, again, I don't think we can express it in a way that really does justice to the, <clears throat> the extreme hostility that's going on here. When he says... For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What do you think that was about? Well, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when, as a Jewish person, the dividing wall? It would be the temple, right? And, and you know how the temple was constructed. First of all, the outer part, there's the court of the Gentiles. And then you go forward toward the temple proper, and there's a barrier. And the next barrier is the court of the women. And with every barrier, according to Josephus, it was a step up. So the court of the Gentiles, they could be outside, but there's basically be, it'd be like standing out in the parking lot, you know? Like if we're having a service in here, you Gentiles stand out there in the parking lot. The court of the women would be like coming into uh, a foyer. You're inside, you're significant, but you're still limited because the next step up is the court of the men. Now the men, as the leaders of the home, they can come to this next thing and take their sacrifice, bring the lamb, representing the family. So leaving the women in the court of the women, the men take the sacrifice and meet the priest, and the priest goes to the court of the priests. And that's where the sacrifice is offered. And then there's the holy place itself, and nobody gets in there. You see the progression? It's kind of interesting. And again, according to Josephus and the records, the temple at that time, you go from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women, there's a three-cubit wall. Now, how long is a cubit? 18 inches. So how tall is three cubits in feet? You mathematicians out there? Come on now i got some engineers sitting here. It's four and a half feet, right? So four and a half feet's not that tall. you got this little wall here. But there's a sign that says, in so many words, if you're a Gentile, if you step across this, you will be responsible for your death, which will ensue. In other words, as soon as you step across there, somebody's going to take you out and kill you. And they weren't joking. Remember, uh, the Apostle Paul was accused of taking a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple, 
past that barrier. And people wanted to kill Paul and Trophimus for doing that, which he didn't do. But they, they saw him running around with the Gentiles, so they said, well, he must have done that. Why am I telling you this? Because built into the Jewish mind are these walls of hostility. And you Gentiles, you stay out there in the parking lot. We don't want you here. And you're not coming in where we're worshiping God. You're out there and you stay out there. That's as close as you can get. That's their attitude. You follow that? In Christ, all those walls have been broken down. Do you realize the hostility that's going on in our country right now? You're not, it's, you're not lost upon that, are you? All the push for racial reconciliation that's going on. The hatred among people groups. In our country, it has a lot to do with the color of somebody's skin. In some places, it's what language you speak or what religious um, background you have. John MacArthur told a story about back in the 1960s, there was a a prominent church and a white preacher who started a friendship with the man who was the custodian of the church and he just happened to be African-American and found out he was a believer and they started praying together and they started having a Bible study together. Now this is back in the 1960s. and That's when I was a kid. I mean, in my neighborhood, there were gang fights between blacks and whites. And I knew guys that had no front teeth because the gang kicked all their teeth out. Those are the people I went to school with. I'm not making this up. So I lived this. But in MacArthur's story, when people in the community found out that the white pastor was having a Bible study with the African-American custodian, they told him to stop. And he said, no, I, I can't do that. He's a brother in the Lord. And so guess what happened? Before long, nobody in the community would sell him anything. He couldn't buy groceries or gasoline. They just shut him down. It got so bad that he had a nervous breakdown. He was put in a psychiatric ward, and he ended up jumping out of a window and killing himself. Now, that really happened in America. You know, that's, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? MacArthur goes on and tells another story, though, that's totally different about what was going on in Africa at the same time. There was a contemporary African church composed of believers from various tribes. They were the bitterest enemies. A missionary who was officiating at a communion service in the church was deeply moved when he looked around and he saw the chief of the Nagoni tribe along with other members of his tribe, and he saw some from the Senga and the Tabuka tribe. And they were all singing and praying and praising the Lord together. But the old chief shared with the missionary that it wasn't too long before, a year or so before, where they used to celebrate how many people that they killed from each other's tribes. They would kill men, women, and children. They'd come back with blood on their spears, and now, all those people, those tribes who had come to Christ, were worshiping together. You see, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and you know, from one thing that we need to take from this passage is the hostility 
that has gone on between Jews and Gentiles down through the ages. And now the hostility that we find in our own culture because people groups decide they hate each other based on skin color or some other reason. That Christians cannot be that way. We've got to shine the light of the gospel. And we've got to show everyone that all those walls have been broken down in Christ. There's no wall separating the the Gentiles from the court of the women. And there's no wall separating the women from the men. All that's been destroyed by Christ. In verse 15 it says, By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. When he says one new man, he's talking about one new person. And the word new is the kind of word, it's not the word neo, it's the word kainos, which means new in quality, like something that's just been invented for the first time. You can get a new car, that's a neo, because they've had lots of other cars. But a new person in Christ is something brand new. And that's who we are. We're going to revisit this concept in chapter 4 because he's going to talk about putting on the new man, the new person, who we are in Christ. You see, it's Christ who's reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God through his cross. Notice what he says in verse 16. That he might reconcile us both that's Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, that's the, the church, through the cross, thereby killing or removing the hostility. Jesus has paved the way. And so we need to love people well. We need to be the ones who proclaim that in Christ there's no barriers. Remember what it says back in Galatians? This is what it says back in Galatians 3, uh, 27. It says, For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to get that. And we need to feel it. When we preach the gospel... All people groups, and not just Americans, all around the world, that we have brothers and sisters who don't speak our language, who don't sing the songs that we sing, that don't worship exactly the way that we worship, but we are one in Christ. Are you getting that? In verse 17, he says, He came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Peace, true peace, is now available through Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and you who were far off are now as close as you can ever get. Well, I've got to stop. What I've been trying to say is, in summary, number one, as Gentiles, what we were before coming to Christ, I hope you caught that. And then secondly, verses 13 to 17, as Gentiles, how Christ brought us to himself, what he's done through the cross, Now, we're not done with this. We stopped right in the middle of the section because I knew how windy I would be. But but we want to return to this again at least one more time as we look at the next few verses of this section. So here's my take-home lessons for you. Number one, 
And, and see if you get this. When we are disappointed with the behavior of unbelievers, let us remember what we were before we were saved. I mean, do you ever hear like members of Congress saying idiotic things? <laughs> are you surprised? Pray for them. Pray for them. They need to be saved. Of course they say things like that. Secondly, as we witness to unbelievers, let us remember how spiritually blind they are. If you're going to be an effective witness, you're talking to somebody who's spiritually dead. They don't know what you're talking about. And it's only by the Holy Spirit who can bring them under conviction of sin so that they would be saved. Thirdly, let us take a special interest and care for Jewish people, knowing that they are important to God's sovereign plan. I'm so glad we have someone, a couple that is wanting to minister to Jewish people. And, you know, Jewish people don't want to hear about missionaries. They don't want to hear about evangelical anything. They don't want you to talk to them about the gospel. They don't like that. But we need to love them for the sake of Jesus. And finally, as we worship our Lord Jesus Christ, may we never cease to exalt in the fact that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He died for you and me. And so today, take joy in the fact that you're members of Christ's body. You have an eternal and wonderful future in Him. Jesus did that. It should make a difference how you live today. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you. Lord, we never can do justice to the text of Scripture, but I pray that what has been shared today would touch our hearts and cause us to exalt in our precious Lord Jesus Christ and that we might live for you today. Help us to love other people well. Help us especially be looking out for lost people and people that are disenfranchised. Help us to have compassion like you do. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.